Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by the writer Danny Rhodes. Danny grew up in Grantham, Lincolnshire, before moving to Kent in 1994 to attend university in Canterbury. And he's lived in the cathedral city ever since. His debut novel, As Beauville, was published in 2006 and was selected as a Waterstones Booksellers Paperback of the Year. And it has also been adapted for BBC Films. His next novel, Soldier Boy, was published in 2009, while his third novel, Fan, came out in 2014, and it's grounded in Danny's experience as a Nottingham Forest supporter at the Hillsborough disaster of April the 15th, 1989, and he has just finished a prequel to that novel called Kid. Danny also writes short stories in a variety of genres, and his short story, Toadstone, has been shortlisted for the prestigious BBC National Short Story Award with the winner announced on October the 19th. Danny, welcome to Read All About It podcast. Oh, good evening. Well, thank you for having me. I don't want to tempt fate here in terms of the uh, the short story award. Can I tell you that well, for three, I've had three previous guests on the podcast. Douglas Stewart, when he was long-listed for the Booker Prize, he went on and won the Booker Prize. Craig Russell, who wrote a great book called Hyde, he just won the McIlvany Prize for the best crime novel 2021 at the Bloody Scotland Festival and then Robbie Morrison was on his debut novel Edge of the Grave which just awarded the Bloody Scotland debut crime novel 2021 I'm not saying that I had anything to do with it but I'm hoping that <laughs> that good luck rubs off, off on you with this award could you please make sure that's the case no honestly I'm I think oh that's amazing well done I mean I'm trying not to think about it to be honest um it's a sort of strange one isn't it because I was thrilled to be shortlisted completely unexpected I only sent this story off at the last minute on a sort of, I don't normally submit to awards and things like that and competitions, but um, but this story just felt like it was the right sort of story and here we are. But to be honest, even just being shortlisted has been amazing. Been, there's been so much, so much sort of noise around it that um, I'm kind of thrilled whatever happens now. But yeah, underneath it all, it'd be nice to win. So. <laughs> I suppose, because I was wondering if it's you know a strange feeling that we're recording this on the day that they, so earlier on in BBC, I think it was BBC Radio 4, they read your story out. So, so national radio, that the world gets to, to listen to the story that obviously starts off just as a gem of an idea in, in your head. Is that a strange feeling then, to apart from the fact that it's got so far to be shortlisted, but then you're hearing it broadcast on national radio? I think what's different about it from the other stuff, because obviously, I mean, I've written novels, like you say, and, and about 30, between 30 and 40 short stories I've had published in various magazines, but I've never, I've never experienced what I experienced today was, which was hearing the story, because I was hearing it for the first time, and the audience, which I think someone said is around a million, which, which is quite frightening in itself, are hearing it for the first time as well. I always wanted to be a musician, but I wasn't very talented when it came to, to being a musician. So, you know, I, I, um, I got a guitar when I was a teenager and um, wrote really bad songs. And um, but I, I sort of got trapped at the bar chords and couldn't get past them. So I gave up um, <laughs> and decided to write stories instead. And um, But yeah, I think this was 
so this was a slightly different experience it was almost like a in a way it was like a performance except i wasn't performing it it was performed by the actor that read it out but it felt that way it was totally different experience and they abridged parts of it which was interesting because i said to them just you do your job i I don't want to get involved in that it's i'm happy for you to decide what you think should be in it so i was i had it up on the screen in front of me as i was reading it and i was scrolling as they kept missing bits out and I was thinking why have you missed that bit out and uh, but no but it all worked out they did a, a brilliant job so um, yeah thrilled to bits absolutely yeah as you say when you when you actually put it into that context of a million people sitting there listening to your words it's I mean it's extraordinary but it's probably hard to to kind of get really get a handle on that because it's, it's such a massive number of people that suddenly you're reaching yeah and last night when I did the front row interview which was live I tried not to think about that because I think if I had thought about that, I'd have I'd have lost some sense of reality, you know. So, um, which is strange, isn't it? Because that's what you want as a writer. You want an audience. You're always desperate to get one, and then you get one, and it's quite terrifying. But um, but yeah, so far so good. I suppose as well as if uh, you know, for example, if a million people were were buying your novel and reading it, they're doing it apart from the fact that you, you're celebrating that fact, but they're doing it privately in the houses or wherever and you're not aware of that you're maybe seeing the numbers no. but it's then sales figures that's different from knowing that you're sitting there with a million other people experiencing that as a kind of communal experience yeah and I think it was Joni Mitchell I seem to remember hearing her talking about this at some point and saying how the difference between because she's a painter as well I think quite successful painter now as well but the difference between playing a song to an audience and then being able to play it again and again and immediately seeing and feeling the audience reaction to being a writer or say an artist where you produce something on your own in a quiet room with nobody around like you say that's come out of your head and then and then you put it out into the world but apart from you know you might occasionally stumble across or google a um, a review of your of your work you generally you never know who's reading it where or when or how they're responding to it, if they're responding to it at all. So it's, it's a totally different thing. And I've done the odd reading, but I don't think they're really the same either. That's just a hushed room with people trying not to cough, you know. Um, well, as I say, we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed for, for October the 19th that uh, well, your name's right. The other thing, and I, mean, I don't know if I'm the first person to say this, but I was reading your wee bio, and the first line was, you grew up in Grantham, Lincolnshire. And I'm thinking, thank God somebody good came from there. Because <laughs> obviously, <laughs> some, pe- people, some people may uh, remember that uh, a certain former female Prime Minister hailed from that part of the world. Absolute, absolutely. And I've crossed, I've crossed that bridge when I wrote Fan, because um, Fan, the novel that I wrote about my experience of Hillsborough, was, um, includes some references to that former Prime Minister. They're not very positive ones. I mean, Grantham, without getting into a a political debate and a political discussion, um, Grantham was, in my eyes, Grantham was sort of decimated by the Thatcher years. You know, it was a manufacturing town when I was growing up. There was a real sense of community and all those factories have gone now. I mean, maybe they were going to go anyway, but it seemed to accelerate through the 80s and into the early 90s, which I find quite, quite sad in a way. You mentioned the novel Fan that came out of your experience as a Nottingham Forest fan that day in the FA Cup semi-final in, in 1989, the, the Hillsborough mm. disaster. I'd heard an interview you did, I think it might have been the front row interview, you were talking about, you've written a, a kind of prequel to, to that novel called Kid, which 
also, uh, I suppose if any publishers are, are listening to this, <laughs> if, if I'm, I'm sure that in terms of the, the interest in your writing as well, even just the profile of the, the National Short Story Award, I would hope that that will help as well and, and people want to see what else that you've been working on. Well, I plugged that on Front Row last night and immediately... I, I was impressed. <laughs> I was quite embarrassed by it when I did it. And I, after the interview ended, I, I sat there thinking, oh my God, what have I done? But um, but what actually came out of it is I had an email from them today and they thanked me for last night's interview. And I thanked them, of course. And um, and I apologised and said, oh, I'm sorry, I, I plugged my... And they actually responded to that email and said that they were um, they thought it was good because um, it kind of, in a way, helps demystify this. Or, you know, I, I grew up thinking that authors were all successful all of the time and um you know all had you know nice nice cottages in Cornwall to go and write in or whatever and you know by the sea and um and it was a life I kind of hankered after but the actual truth of the matter is that for sort of 90% plus of us it's a it's just a grind and um you have that need to write and you want to get your work out there but very few of us have the comfort if you like of a contract that's maybe you know a, a several book contract and the money as well that's coming in so you're kind of Every book I've written really has been a shot in the dark in the sense that I don't know if anyone's going to ever want to publish it, whether I'm going to get an agent or if I've got an agent, whether the agent's going to want it at the end. And whether, I, I, maybe that's the same for all writers, but it's hard. So, yeah, I, I just threw that in there. We'll see what comes of it. Um, I should say as well, before we, we continue that, I said I would give a name check to a previous guest, Stephen Keady, who it was exactly, him that, yeah. that kind of put us together. He's a, a massive uh, fan of your novel, fan, and I, I remember at the time him talking about it. Uh, so it's thanks to Stephen that he's got us together for this podcast, and he runs the State Eight Albums website, which is is a music website. It's well worth anybody checking out. I, and yes, and I've contributed to that. And um, he doesn't know it, but I've actually bought his novel Suburb and it's up there on the shelf. So I'm going to read it at some point and then let him know what I thought of it, which I'm sure it'll be great. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Well, in terms of this podcast, what I always like to do is is take every guest on a the literary journey of their life and take you back to childhood. I should say that like a lot of guests, when I put these five questions to you, and, and I always half apologise because I get the easy part because I'm only asking you the questions. You're the one that has to choose the books, which is the toughest of choices. But if, if we start with your favourite book from childhood and the first of the ones that you mentioned uh, was the Willard Price adventure series. I think it was a series of about 14 novels. What was it about those books that, that stuck with you? Yeah, that's really interesting because they're the first books that I I really remember reading in the sense of going to the library in Grantham and going to seek out because they were a series of I think like you say 14 novels African adventure elephant adventure you know tiger adventure same characters I think I quite enjoyed the the fact that it carried me out of that little town into this these exotic locations which actually I did a bit of reading up on on him um, after mentioning them to you and it seems that that was very much his aim he he, he wanted people to be um you know he was he was a sort of ecological warrior of his time I think it was Hal and Roger I think were the brothers and I think they've been repackaged and then they've written some new ones um, but with them they've changed some of the characters and things like that yeah I think it's I think it's the children of the two original characters that now get involved in adventures because one of the things that, that was interesting when I was doing the research given you know the fact that you're a writer that there was three people just offhand David Mitchell 
uh, Mark Gatiss and Anthony Horowitz all cited those books as you know favourite books from childhood and also an influence in terms of I don't know whether it's the idea of you know that ability of storytelling and, and taking or, or this the first become aware as you said of a book can take a reader away from the reality mm. into a new reality and that that's maybe that the first kind of sense of this is what books can really do for you. Yeah, and I wonder if maybe the fact that the libraries had them in because I don't, I mean, I'm not saying I grew up in a house without books, far from it. I mean, you know, my parents did have a few books dotted about. My dad used to read Alistair MacLean and those kind of um, spy thrillers and things like that and war novels and stuff. But the weekly trip to the library was uh, was quite a big thing, you know, and I think you could get seven books, so it was quite exciting. And I guess the libraries all had these Willard Price books in. And, and maybe as a boy also, that whole collector thing of trying to read, you know, get through them all was a factor. I mean, Mark Gattis is an interesting one to me because he's kind of ploughed that furrow in TV and film where he's, he's working in that kind of slightly weird fiction area. And he's the one who gets to do the M.R. James dramatisations every Christmas and things like that now. And he's, I've got a lot of time for him. And his work. So it's, it's quite nice to know that we, we both had a similar childhood experience. Because the other thing, and again, it struck me in the past, and you'd also mentioned the fact that Enid Blyton's Famous Five series was another mm. important one. And quite a lot of people, when it's their childhood book, it is more than just one book. It's a series because mm. you know, that way, as you say, when you read one and you love it, you want to read another one and another one. And the fact that there's a series it kind of feeds into that desire and that passion for reading. And you want to work your way through the whole series. Yes, and Enid Blyton's an interesting one because um, I was reading one of the Enid Blyton books with my daughter um, during lockdown. We we read one, I think, Five on a Treasure Island. And I think we were both shocked by... I don't think Enid Blyton's work has aged quite as well as some other authors. It, it does feel quite old-fashioned now. The thing is, it didn't. It must have been old-fashioned even in the 70s, although I saw some covers of that they had, and they, they changed the covers as... So in the 70s, they kind of had jeans on and things like that, which was quite interesting. I had a bit of a crush on Georgina. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, there we are. There's a, there's a, there's a confession. But, yeah, I, um, I think, you know, when you're a child, you, I mean, I used to collect Panini stickers and things like that. So I think it's that kind of, and soldiers and Sabutio teams. So I guess it was another kind of, yeah, let's see how many of these I can get through sort of thing. Because to be fair, that's, that, that sounds exactly like my childhood. Because I still... I'll still argue to the day I die that Subutio is the greatest game ever invented. Um, but I have said to people, you know, I, I can understand why kids nowadays when they're playing FIFA 21, it's a slightly different appeal to getting all these wee figures and, and flicking them. But that was my childhood as well. Yeah, and I just got my father brought down my old Subutio. It was in the attic at, his, at their place. So they it's now in the attic at my place. But the pitch, unfortunately, has um, crumbled away. So... It didn't last. Uh, no, the other book that you had mentioned in this category as well was the Clive King's Stig of the Dump. That's slightly what that one's slightly different because that one is more about carrying me back to primary school and being read to. So I had a wonderful teacher called Mr. Heathcote, who was about six foot six. He would, he would have been young at the time, he'd have been in his probably twenties. He was a Nottingham Forest supporter. But he was a Forest supporter at the time when Forest were, you know, champions of Europe. I've got a brilliant photograph that I found in my research for fan, which is um, the Grantham supporters branch getting ready to board the coach to go 
to the European Cup final in um, Munich. I was slightly young, so I did watch them on television, but this photo's got all these wonderful faces and and he's there at the back sort of towering over everybody with a big smile on his face. Um, but he used to read a Stig of the Dump and I can remember, you know, the reading corner and him sitting there on the chair. And um, I had a sort of girlfriend when I was about eight called Judith Wallace. Maybe she was Scottish. I don't know. But um, <laughs> and used to sort of try and hold hands secretly um, as you listened to this. So I've got fond memories of that, of that book. And another book I really enjoyed as an adult, actually, that reminded me a lot of that was David Allman's um, Skellig, which was in some ways felt very similar, a kind of book about a boy who discovers this, you know, this strange creature or this sort of otherworldly thing. He finds it in a garage or a shed. But yeah, Stig of the Dump will always, in fact, I'd like to read it again. That's that's to put on the to-do list. Because I'm always curious and I've, I've spoke to people about that of, you know, when you read a book that you have a, a fondness for at a particular time and a particular age, what your reaction will be at a different time and a different age? Because obviously you're you're reading it now as a, as an adult and as a father, but with those memories of you know being that wee guy holding Judith's hand. <laughs> I wonder if she's listening. There we are. That would be that yeah. would be a great a great story. <laughs> That's my first girlfriend. That was. Um, I don't think we kissed or anything. We just held hands. You know. Um, as you do at that age um, <laughs> but yeah that's the magic of books really isn't it <laughs> it is yeah to carry but i can almost smell it now and the rain pattering on the window you know yeah well, in terms of your literary life then if i can take you on from childhood to teenage years and your favorite book from from then kind of teenage formative years again you gave me two it kind of bridged that teenage years and then into to being a student and the first of those was one of the stephen king novels it I take it you were a big Stephen King fan when you were a teenager. Well, I think my love of horror and um, sort of dark fantasy and weird fiction, which obviously, I mean, Toadstone that I've just had, you know, that we talked about earlier is is a book sort of based in kind of folklore and sort of folk horror almost. It's, it's a very quiet story. But my sort of interest in that all, all started in the 80s. But then that's not surprising because eight, in the 80s, horror had its real boom period. I don't remember there being a bookshop in, in Grantham. I mean, there may have been one, but if, I, if there was, I don't recall going in there. But there was a WH Smiths, and I remember that the WH Smiths, the shelves in WH Smiths for a time in the 80s were just full of horror. Now, there's a great book by Grady Hendrix, which is a book about the horror boom in the 70s and 80s. I can't remember the name of the title, but he, he read something like two, 300 books in a year to write this book all number of horror novels, some that were good, some that were awful. And that's what the shelves were like in W.H. Smith's. And so, you know, we read James Herbert and everybody had a copy of uh, Rats and The Fog. And I don't know if we're allowed to say this on the uh, in this podcast, but, you know, the boys would pass them around and the, there'd always be certain pages that they'd fall open to because there's always at least one scene like that that everybody wanted to read and, and Lair and all those and Domain. I remember reading those. And then don't know if I'd read any Stephen King before I read it but I read it when I was I'd just finished school so I was about 16 and I was working in a I can remember I was working in a printer's I made some bad career choices in my life and one of them was that I entered the print trade literally just as it was dying on its knees so that was the first job after school and I so I was made redundant twice before I was 18 so that that was quite a that was quite a shock but I do remember reading it while working at this printer's and 
the thing that it did for me as much as anything else is it made me want to be a writer. I mean, that was the book that, I mean, I'd always been, English was one thing I'd always been good at at school. I wrote a great, um, I remember, well, I say great. I rem- to me, it was great. I wrote a great epic poem about the 1985 FA Cup final between Everton and Watford. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, and that controversial Andy Gray goal and all of that. So I was always, I always loved writing. And then when, when I read Stephen King's It, I just felt, right, this is what I want to do. And my parents got hold of, I don't know how, an old typewriter and some typewriter ribbons. And I started to write a novel and I wrote it in notebooks and I tried typing it up. I filled about three notebooks full and it was a story. It was basically an it ripoff. I didn't realise it at the time, but it, but it was. With the same kind of story, a group of kids who were trying to fight this kind of... It, it was an alien rather than a monster living in the sewers, but it was a very similar type of book. But yeah, it, that kind of triggered a lot of things for me. It just triggered a sort of a need the dream. And then I think I read a book by, by Robert Block, but I'm not sure if it was Robert Block, the guy who wrote Psycho or the other Robert Blocks. There might be two of them about writing. And I got that out of the library and I read it and devoured it and learned and started to try and learn what, you know, how you actually became a writer and what you did. It's the first book I read on the craft of writing. And um, yeah, off, off I went, really. It didn't go anywhere. I never finished it. And I've still got them. But that was the beginning. I guess the, the one thing that I'd find, as much as I love what he's done and I've, I've enjoyed everything he's written that I've read, I guess the one thing that's, he's, he's kind of, because he's so successful, whenever anyone mentions horror, they tend to mention him. And I think he's, he, he casts huge shadow, which is not of his own making. And I, 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 I know he's, from my understanding, he's a very, he seems to be a really lovely guy. And he, and he pays it forward a lot. You know, he's, he's always tweeting about other people's work and, you know, things like that. But I think that it means that everyone else kind of lives under that shadow. And I remember watching a horror writer, and I can't remember the name of it, at one of the conventions that I sometimes go to, the fantasy convention, in British fantasy convention in, it's called FantasyCon. And he was talking about, he used to work in publishing, and he said something like, in the minds of publishers, there's only sort of two or three slots for horror in terms of selling enough books to make it worthwhile. Stephen King already holds one of those slots and then maybe James Herbert would have been another, but he's, he's obviously passed away now. And then maybe Clive Barker as well, although he's unwell as well. And then I think, so that was like, that's it. There are, there's no room for any more, you know? So everyone else is kind of scrabbling around for the, whatever's left. Um, so I think a lot of people will probably hope he'd retire in a way, but he carries on, doesn't he? he just carries on churning them out. And they're, and they're still good. And I, I've not read his latest one, but people say the latest one's the best one he's ever written. So, In terms of this category, the other I've mentioned you'd uh, referred to another book uh, when you were kind of more into, I think, your student years. And it was uh, Raymond Carver's uh, short story collection, Where I'm Calling From. Would that be where you, you're kind of interested in short stories and short story writing? Is that where it takes its roots from? Yeah, I, I mean, what happened there was after I'd, lost my second job as a uh, in the print trade I joined the Royal Mail and I worked for five years as a postman that was sort of the eight, 18 to 23 kind of age and I read a, I was still reading horror Dean Koontz people like that and then when I was 23 I, I, jo- I did an access course when I was 22 to get myself to university and then I got accepted at the University of Kent which is why I moved to Canterbury and I studied 
English and American literature and history. In my second or third year, I think it was the third year, I did a module called The American Short Story. And suddenly that, that exposed me to Hemingway and Carver and James Baldwin and all these other writers. And that, that was the moment when my sort of writing head rekindled its, you know, it came out because I'd be it kind of, after that sort of attempt at writing a Stephen King novel, I'd kind of just, that had sort of almost, I was still, still writing the odd thing here or there, but not really doing anything. And then, and then suddenly when I realised that you could write like Hemingway or try to and write like Carver, and I got that where I'm calling from off the reading list and I bought it and yeah, I just thought it was, this was my life. I mean, these are stories about working class. I mean, may, maybe slightly Carver's work, the characters are all a bit lost. They're all a bit on the periphery. There are some middle-class stories in there, but Carver himself was a, you know, very much came from a blue collar background as they call it in the States. And a bit like Springsteen who had also got into in the eighties, you know, a lot of songs about the dispossessed and the sort of, people sort of searching for answers and but all very subtle and all very quiet and all very you you read a carver story and you're not quite sure what what it is you've read but you know that it that it's touched you in some way and that this character is about to go through some sort of change that's going to make a difference for good or bad and 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 also the brevity of his writing which I know he wasn't completely um, in control of I've learned since in in later life but just the brevity of it the accuracy of it, the imagery, and 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 the same with Hemingway, just the the artistry of it. When I was at university, I used to buy a thing called the Best American Short Stories every year. Got a few on my shelf up there, and um, there, I mean there are publishers now. You know, Salt do Best British Short Stories, so they are there. But you go into a bookshop, the obvious bookshop here, and you might find in the top corner of fiction about a quarter of a shelf of short story collections and anthologies and then you're straight into novels a aren't you and then you know and then it goes like that so I mean it'd be interesting to see how like for instance this short story collection that goes with the BBC short story award I'd be interested to know how much sort of traction that gets in the in the publishing world hopefully a lot Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddyhead, my guest, the writer, Danny Rhodes. Danny, we're on to the third book category, and that is a book that you'd recommend to anyone. And you've kindly split it between books that you'd recommend to writers or would-be writers and readers. And we mentioned earlier on uh, one of the books that you wanted to recommend. You're not the first person to recommend Stephen King on writing. I'm sure you'll not be the last. I think it's a wonderful book. I read it when I was in my late 20s and I was I was living in Whitstable in Kent it was after my university days it was after all of my friends had gone away that I'd met at university I became quite isolated in Whitstable I it was a move that I sort of regretted in a way and I came back to Canterbury which was much more lively but what was good about Whitstable is it did give me quite a lot of quiet time it's just at the right time in my life I think I read it one winter I think and I think that was the book. It was, this was to be about 2001, 2002, maybe around there. That was when I learned this idea of, right, begin with short fiction, send it off to small publishers. And I didn't have an in, any internet access. What I like about it is that he, he talks about it in a very, it's, it's very late in layman's terms, you know, it's very, you know, you're reading from someone who's been there and done it. That helps. 
it doesn't feel like it's actually that complicated in a, in a way it is but it didn't feel that way when you read it and you suddenly um he helps you to believe that you can do it and he talks about the process and he talks about his own struggles and he talks about the nuts and bolts he even calls it that I think the nuts and bolts of writing and all of those things just I think that was the perfect storm at the perfect time for me coupled with the fact that I'd been reading I remember reading that around about then. The, I think I mentioned it on my list, Watership Down by um, Richard Adams, which I read as an adult. And that was just a fantastic story. And I think between those two books, reading them at that time, I, that was the moment, that was the green light moment when I thought I can do this. So I ended up writing a novel while I was living in Whitstable. It eventually came out in a tiny American publisher a long, long time later. But it was a sort of, it was my first time that I'd actually finished a novel I'd started one and I'd finished one, gone all the way through. And it was also when I first started to actually finish short stories as well. It's interesting, you know, we were talking earlier on about Stephen King maybe not being as highly regarded as, as perhaps he should be. And I wonder whether some of that is the fact that he does try to demystify writing mm-hmm. rather than elevate it to something that only a select few are capable by some strange mm. alchemy or gift can do. He's actually he's actually turning it on his head and saying, as you say, the nuts and bolts, not actually, people, not everybody will do it the same, to the same level, but here's how you can do it. And I'm not sure if that can irritate some people. No, I think you're right. And I think the truth of the matter there is probably that, I mean, I remember I remember going to, when I, just after Asboville came out, I got invited to do a talk at a university. So suddenly I'd gone from, you know, a student to suddenly being someone that people wanted to talk about writing, which was a real, quite quite a shock to the system. But I remember going there and, and I do this with my students now and I go, a lot of this is just, it's just down to damn bloody hard work. You know, it's not, there's no secret here, you know. I mean, there are, there are secrets you can learn and there are, there are skills you can learn, I suppose, and you do become better at it. But at the end of the day, you've just got to knuckle down, haven't you, and get on with it. And I remember saying something like that, and I could see the horror on the um, lecturer's face, you know. I've changed a bit since then, but I think then I was kind of like, I was fresh and I was trying to be different. And um, I've realised that's not what they want to hear. So, (laughs) But actually, you know, that's a bit unfair because I am a lecturer in creative writing now, and, and I still do encourage my students the first thing we talk about we met our new group yesterday the first thing I said to them one of the first slides I share with them is um there's an article by a guy called Michael Ventura and it's called the talent of the room and the basic argument of it is how long can you stay in a room on your own that is the acid test because if you can do that for long enough you will produce stuff but how do you get everything else out of your life you know, at what cost are you prepared to take to do that? Because you know that way, it's really interesting because if you say to someone maybe either thinking of writing or I never thought of it and, and you say that, put it in those terms, you know, how long can you stay in a room? And then first people might say, that doesn't sound too hard, but it's it's more than that. It's you're on your own with your own thoughts and with your own mm. determination mm. and with so many other things that are desperate to drag you out of that room. And it's exactly. such a simple thing, but you're kind of going to the crux of, you know, the hard work, the 1% inspiration, the 99% perspiration sort of idea. And when you're in your 20s and you're learning your craft, distractions everywhere. So you've got to be able to say no to people when they invite you out, but don't do it so much that they stop asking you out. And um, you've got to build time into your life to just say, no, I'm, I'm going to be there now and I'm going to 
try and get some words on the page, however many words it is. I saw a tweet yesterday where a, a female writer was saying that she she just got a job and how is she going to um, be able to write? You know, she's a new writer. And a lot of people were tweeting back with practical advice. So these are writers giving practical advice. And that's what they were saying. You know, make an hour at lunchtime. Or my advice there would always be try and do it before you go to work in the morning. So get up an hour earlier. But you've got to have the discipline to do that. I wrote my first novel like that by getting up at half past five instead of half past six and getting down to my computer sort of groggy eyed at six. And then I was able to sort of stay at the computer till seven. And Asboville is is made up of a lot of short chapters. And part of the reason it's made up of short chapters is because I was writing it in that window of time before I went off. And I was head of English in a secondary school. So, you know, it was a full on job. If I'd left it to when I got home in the evening, there was no chance. Because by the time I'd eaten, that was it. I was dead to the world, you know. So yeah. it had to be written in the morning. Later on, I learned other skills. But I think that, you know, Stephen King, he talks about his muse, doesn't he? And how you go to the muse and you knock on the door. And you demand to be let in, as opposed to waiting for the the muse to open the door and let you in. And he's obviously managed to retain that discipline because he's been doing it for so long. But what I found was that when I was when I quit teaching, I came into a small amount of money. It wasn't an awful lot, but it was enough for me to have a a spell out of teaching for about six months. So I had from January of one year until the summer, I had a window where I could be a full time writer. And I'd, I've got to be honest, I didn't cope very well with that. I put on weight. I spent a lot of time on the internet. Did a lot of, I went for a lot of walks with the dog at the time. I got words down, but I think I'm more suited towards a kind of life where you, you fit it in and around. So I don't think I'm really, and I know a full-time writer, at least one full-time writer, and she writes two books a year. And it's a six-day-a-week job for her. And I don't know, if it became that, I don't know if I could do it. The, the other book on writing that, that I wasn't aware, I'm not aware of, that you'd recommended, it's Ray Bradbury's Zen and the Art of Writing. Oh, you must read it. It's just, so Bradbury, you know, he was just this kind of force of nature, even when he was towards the end of his life. He was like a little child. There's some great videos of him online talking in his, in his writing studio, and he's got plastic dinosaurs and things like that on the, on the desk in front of him. But the best person to sort of become enthused for Bradbury for is a guy called Sam Weller, who was his biographer. And um, he did the famous um, Paris Review interview with Bradbury, which you can find on the internet, in which Bradbury talks about some of his techniques. But they're also in Zen in the Art of Writing, which is just this really little, little infectious book about the craft and about his writing journey and about it's just so positive. I've just been talking about writing like it's a hardship. And it's hard work and you have to sort of stay in this room. And whereas he see, he saw all that as a joy. What what a better life to have than to just go into your imagination each day and and find stories and write about them. I mean, this is a guy that he he was writing in the heydays of science fiction in the 1950s. He was writing a story a week, 50 stories a year. Um, and that was how he made his living. And I, I guess that paid what, you know, a hundred dollars or two. And that was enough to live on in those days in the, in, in California or whatever. And um come up with the idea on the Sunday, write the first draft on the Monday, polish it Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, stick it in the post on a Friday. And then that was it. Maybe have Saturday off and then do it again and again. And he's, I've got two of his collections of, they're called Ray Bradbury's stories, volumes one and two. And they're about, you know, they're about four inches thick, both of them, hundreds of stories, but they're all a joy to read. And he, and one technique he used, which I I use with my students is, um, 
he used to sit down and just make lists of nouns, things that he liked, things that meant something to him. Tyrannosaurus Rex, Toy Soldier, and one of the one, a skeleton. And one thing he wrote, and, and Foghorn was one. And then he'd do a, he'd do a kind of, so it's an activity I do with my students. They have to do a mind map around a word. So, and they have to just think of every single word that they either associate with it or even a word that they disassociate with it. Just anything, get it all down on this page, a scattering of words. And then the third task is to write a paragraph of really beautiful pose poetry about that object or that thing. So the most famous one in Bradbury's fiction, I think, is in The Foghorn, the story of The Foghorn, which is about a lonely light, lighthouse keeper um, who is visited by this sea creature. But this actual, um, this actual paragraph of prose in which he described the sound of a foghorn is probably one of the most beautiful paragraphs of writing that you'll ever get to read. Um, I encourage anybody to go and find that story and read it. And once you've once you recognise these paragraphs, which he used as the foundation for his stories, as you read other stories by him, you you find them. You find oh look, there's that there's that prose poem paragraph again. Oh, there's that prose poem paragraph. So he just used that same technique. But he was just a he was just a, such an inspirational character and an inspirational figure and a jobbing writer that did well for himself. You know, I mentioned that you were given recommendations for writers, but also readers and which again is a difficult one because you're kind of plucking one book out, out of, of many writers and many, many books that you've read. But you did mention, and you've mentioned already Hemingway, The Old Man and the Sea. Yeah, which I only read very recently, maybe two years ago. I think that book, I just watched the BBC series on Hemingway that was on the sort of biographical series. It ran to, actually I say it was on BBC, but I think it was an American series which I find really riveting. Um, it's probably on iPlayer now. And that helped contextualise The Old Man and the Sea because I think he'd had a period where, you know, he'd sort of, he'd lost his way a bit. And then, and then he comes out with this just perfect, perfect novel. There's not a word out of place in it. You know, I mean, it's just the most perfect extended metaphor for whatever you want it to be, you know. Just this gorgeous novel about this man, this old fisherman that goes out to, catch this marlin or whatever it is he's after and and then the marlin drags his boat out into the ocean drags him miles away from Havana and he can't even see the shore anymore and um, eventually he manages the thing dies and then and then he turns the boat around and tries to get the the marlin the dead marlin which is strapped to the boat back to shore and well without one well everyone knows the story it gets eaten by all the sharks so um, so he ends up arriving back in the in Havana with just this story of this and this carcass of and the story of this amazing fish, the greatest fish that a man could catch. Um, and there's just a little boy on the the harbour who sort of gives the man some food. Sort of, it's absolutely the most perfect novel. And the it's the precision, it's the precision of his prose. And he'd obviously reached a point in his writing life where he knew exactly where every word had to go and in what order. It's just a work of pure art. It's a book I maybe have to go back and try again. I've, I've, <laughs> I've tried reading Hemingway. I tried reading that. I've tried reading some of his short stories and stuff. I find his style of writing. I found it really difficult to get into. Don't know what it was. I just I found it difficult to engage with it. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? I, I think um, that Hemingway and Carver particularly are. You know, they say that they're like the beloved writers of American MFA writing programs. You know. And the, the downside of Hemingway and Carver, a bit like we're saying about King, is that 
what they produce when students go into these programs are just more and more writers who write like Hemingway and Carver. I like to think that they had an influence on my writing. And of course, I'm not on anywhere near the, the level that these guys were on. But um, I suppose I've just had a thing. I've, I've always had a thing for American literature. I don't know why, but ever since that day at university when, when I picked up this Carver book and it's sort of remained with me, I give you a long list of most of them are American. And William Maxwell was a wonderful novelist and short story writer, once editor of The New Yorker. I read, uh, there's a brilliant novel by a guy called James Dickey called Deliverance, which you may know the film. That is a fantastic novel. Just awesome. I mean, that's one of the few novels that I've read twice, actually. Cormac McCarthy, The Road was a great novel, but I also recently read uh, No Country for Old Men, and that's just brilliant as well. So maybe for me, I just it, these kind of writers speak to me in the way that others don't. The other side of the coin of books that you would recommend is obviously books that I couldn't pay you to read again. To be fair to you, like a lot of people who have asked this question, I think maybe particularly a lot of writers, you don't want to kind of name and shame because I suppose these things are all subjective anyway. And, you know, it's maybe difficult to, you don't want to be negative about about a book because even if you don't like it, someone else might. Yeah, I think it's just a case of leaving that to the critics, really. I think maybe because, you know, as a writer, how hard it is just to get anything written the fact that someone has sat down and has managed to begin a project like that and finish it I think is is all respect to them even if you know I'm not going to lie there are books that I've picked up and just thought how on earth has that sold that many copies but in a way there's people that want that you know they're everybody's people like reading it you know I could say that about television programs I think what well, how has that ran for that many years because but there we are. I mean, I just think, you know, hats off to anyone who can finish anything, really. And fair play to them if they've managed to sell a load as well. I know that's not a very satisfying response, but... Um... Well, listen, you're, you're not alone in that. For, for kind of the same, a lot of the same reasons. And as I say, I think particularly writers come into that question, kind of exactly what you just said, is that you have that appreciation of the effort that it takes to even just complete a novel, even before it it might even get published, so it's difficult then to to say that ah, it's not for me. All art's subjective anyway, so. the One of the things we were talking about before we were recording this was, you know, one of your novels, Soldier Boy, I've mentioned it in the introduction, it came out in 2009, and you were you were telling me that was based, set in Glasgow or a, or, or a fictional uh, Glasgow, how did that come about then? yeah that was a that was an interesting one so it, it's got a Springsteen link in a weird way so um I think Springsteen had just written um Devils and Dust yeah which was his his some of the stories in that are his kind of response to the um Iraq war and um things like that and, and I read a brilliant article about a sort of extended article in one of the newspapers about a Scottish soldier a lad called Gordon Gentle he was a fusilier joined the army and he got posted to Iraq and was killed very quickly. And his mother, Rose Gentle, started a sort of, some sort of legal thing about, about the fact that the, the, you know, the army wasn't prepared and that they had vehicles that weren't properly designed for landmines. And it was one of these landmines that had sort of gone off and killed him. And um, I, I, it just really struck me. And this, this, this extended piece of journalism about him was just so good. And it, and it revealed... So much about his kind of upbringing in Glasgow and um, the sort of the guy he was, the lad he was, and and how, why he joined the army, and so much of it kind of echoed with my own upbringing, 
even though I hadn't gone off to join the army, but, you know, the lads together, you know, certain types of lads that didn't particularly do well at school, but were then trying to find their way after and the relationships between the family members. And, and it was a strange one because a bit like fan, and this is where writing sort of takes on, this is where I start to sound a little bit pretentious, but it was one of those books, fan and soldier boy were two books that it was almost like, something took over, like something was stood at my shoulder. And so I wrote this novel about this this character that's based loosely on this Gordon Gentle who grows up in, well, he's a teenager in, in Glasgow and um, he leaves school and he doesn't really know what he wants to do with his life and he sort of gets roped into the idea of joining the army. And and I try and bring the positives in the, fe- the fact that it kind of changes him in a good way as a person. He learns He learns a lot about himself. He becomes mature. He, he earns money for the first time. He's, he's, he finds certain, certain pride in himself. But then the the sort of reverse of that that then he ends up being sent off to this um, this foreign war that he's got no you know, it's got nothing to do with him in any way whatsoever. And that's kind of what you sign away as a as joining the the army, isn't it? You kind of you sign up to do whatever you're told in that respect. And and then it's the story about return because it becomes a bit of a ghost story in the final third where he sort of travels back I don't want to sort of give it away in case anyone does seek it out but I was really touched by that whole story and and her story the mother's story I don't know if she's if she's still alive I think she is sometimes I thought about sending her it and then I thought no it probably isn't very probably not appropriate and um, she's probably not aware of it but it's a strange one because in a way even though we've never met I almost felt like I've had a relationship with her son you know it's really strange. In terms of the podcast, I'm on to the fifth book choice or the fifth question. Um, that's either the last book you read or the book you're currently reading. And you gave me uh, three books. I'm not sure if you've got all three on the go or it's the books you've just finished reading. The first of those was a book by Edward Parnell called Ghostland in Search of a Haunted Country. So this one, I mean, when we started off talking about this short story success I've just had or the you know the shortlisting which has been a success I don't think that this story would have been written without the two books that I read um, around Christmas time late last year um, into Christmas sort of during the lockdown the winter lockdown so the first was yeah Edward Parnell's Ghostland which is just it's a memoir of a guy that, that grew up in not far from where I grew up but he, he lived further east sort of in the Lincolnshire Norfolk border, Kings Lynn, Wisbeach area, very flat, featureless landscape. It's just so it's a memoir about his family and family illness, and but it's also he goes in search of, of stories um, around the UK and visits places that inspired MR James or places that inspired Alan Garner, I think it is, and people like that, and all these sort of writers of fantasy and kind of folklore and mystery and. It's just a, it's a really really beautiful book, and it's got it's got a lot of um, the natural world in it. Him and his brother, they went bird spotting and things like that. It's just a beautiful beautiful appreciation of life and family and place. And one of the books that he writes about is um, Graham Swift's Waterland. Now that had been on my shelf for about twenty years, just sat there, and um, you know it's one of those books that you look at and think, ah. Oh. Oh yeah, I've got that. But you don't even, I, I didn't even think about reading it. I don't know how I acquired it, but I had it. So when I finished um, Ghostland, I thought, well, I'll read Waterland, or at least I'll try to. And that's set in a very similar part of the country, 
North Norfolk, just near the wash, you know. And it's this amazing novel about, well, what's it about? I mean, it's about history and it's about landscape and it's about water and it's about eels. And it's got at the heart of it this kind of tragedy, but it's told in such an amazing way. I mean, he did win the Booker Prize, I think, Graham Swift. I don't know if it was for Waterland or it was for his other one. um, Last Last Orders, which I think is set, um, some of that was set in Canterbury, I think. So, um, yeah, um, what a what an it's just an amazing novel, and that that it was those two books that got me really. Just as I was writing Toadstone, you know, I was reading these books. So the notion of family history and illness and place was all kind of going on in my my head as I wrote that. So yeah, because it's funny you. I'm sure that everybody who hears you talking about having that book for about twenty years in yourself. Well, it will resonate them and they'll probably glance as I'm doing now to my bookshelves going, yeah, I've got a few books in there that have, yeah. that have been there for far too many years without being read. But I, the, the weird thing is, it's one of those serendipitous moments where I don't think I'd have gone out to buy Waterland if it wasn't on my shelf. But the fact that it was and the fact that this other guy had written this just so affectionately about it, I thought, well, I'm going to have to pick that up. And I think it was... It is Alan Garner. Do you know, is it Alan Garner? Did he write The Owl Service? I'm not sure. No, so um, he talks about a book called The Owl Service, which is, I think, a children's book. But I, I have, I did go out and buy that, again, because of the way that um, Edward Parnell writes about um, it in such a way that I thought, I've got to go and read that book, you know. So that's a great book for if you, if you want some, a bit like the Bradbury book, if you want some leaping off points. So leaping off for writing, Bradbury, leaping off for reading, Edward Parnell's Ghostland. Yeah, really lovely. And the other one you mentioned was Independence Day by Richard Ford, who I'm not sure what you thought of that or if you're reading it just now. He's one of so, my uh, favourite writers, actually. Oh, is he? So another American writer that I came to as a result of that, of finding Carver and Hemingway. I read The Sports Writer in my 20s and then I went on to Independence Day and I couldn't read it. I tried to start it about three times and I failed but again, it was on my shelf and I've actually got the other books because I think there's The Lay of the Land and um, yeah. there's a fourth one now as well. Yeah, I think it's let, let Me Be Frank with you. Right. So I've got, so they're on the, they're on my shelf and I'm thinking, but to get to them, I've got to get through Independence Day. So, but I revisited it now as a 49, 50 year old guy and it changed my, I, I mean, you know, it's, this is a book about a divorced guy, you know, and, and suddenly everything in it made sense you know so I think it's about when you know when you read it and I've really I really did enjoy it and it's a book in which not an awful lot happens really and yet he manages to fill sort of 400 pages I mean what did you think of it because you've read it yeah well I, I came to the sports writer that caught my eye as a sports writer as a football writer so that was yeah the, yeah that, that was my starting point and I loved that and that's a book I've read and reread so I actually can't remember what age I was when I read Independence Day, but I loved it. I loved that, you know, I suppose it's effectively, it's a kind of road trip that the mm. Frank, Frank and his son take to the mm. Baseball Hall of Fame. But I mm. I just love the way he draws, as you say, the, the action's all quite conservative. There's not, it's not, mm. there's not big dramatic, well, at first glance, it doesn't seem as there's big dramatic moments in it, but it's the kind of, the minutiae of their life and the way he's drawn those characters. And you're so, you're so in, to me, I'm so invested in Frank and, that journey of who he is that I'm totally hooked on it. I've loved all four of the books, to be honest. I'm looking forward to going to the next one, but I'm going to try and read something else first. But there was one scene in it where he um, he has a long conversation with um, 
the woman that he's kind of attached to in a kind of loose fashion. So he's got his ex-wife and then he's got this woman that he's been having some sort of relationship with. And since my divorce about five years ago, I've had these conversations, you know, I was literally, this is this, I've, I've lived this life. I've been in these rooms, you know, you know, this kind of when you've been married and then you you've gone through that and you've gone through that separation and then you're kind of starting again and you've got all of that experience and possibly baggage. And so is the other person. And then you're trying to kind of formulate what it is you want to um, get from a, a relationship now and how easy it is probably to just walk away from it. And, and that's never quite resolved either in the novel. You never quite find out whether that happens or not. It's, you say that there's no, well, I said there was no real, nothing really happens. And you're right, which is why the, when the one thing that does happen in it, when they go to visit the Baseball Hall of Fame, and again, maybe because I'm a father, you know, that moment when it initially happens was in a very quiet book was really, really powerful. And I, I found myself quite, moved by it and also dreading what was going to happen and I don't want to spoil that for any readers who haven't read it but yeah I thought that was brilliantly done because what I find interesting about Richard Ford I went to see him actually when he was he'd appeared a few years ago at the Edinburgh Book Festival I think it was when Lay of the Land which is the next book in the, the series okay. came out he's a fascinating guy to listen to particularly in talk about writing but he has this thing I don't know if he said it then but he has this famous quote of effectively the the enemy of the writer is the pram in the hallway. So he's not, he's not getting any kids. And I, I just think that's nonsense. I think that's absolute, I, I just think it's total rubbish. He was talking as a father, but I totally disagree with that. The other thing is, I don't know if you saw, was it a year or two ago, he'd brought out a book and somebody had reviewed it less than favourably in one of the American newspapers or magazines. And his reaction to that was, he'd got a copy of this writer's book and in his back garden, shot it. Oh, wow. And I thought, that's just bonkers. <laughs> I mean, I still love his writing, but I'm thinking, I'm not sure if Richard's yeah. a bit out there. There's a whole conversation there, though, to be had, isn't there, about the relationship we have with art and the relationship we have with the artist and where we... I mean, Hemingway was quite unpleasant by today's standards. And Henry Miller, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Henry Miller. I mean, I do find Henry Miller quite hard to read at times because there are huge sections of Miller's writing that where he goes off on a tangent for pages and pages and you don't quite know what he's writing about half the time but then he'll come back to the story but but he can be totally outrageous and currently was quite outrageous as a person so um, and I read somewhere someone saying if you ever go on a date with a guy and he says he likes Hemingway and Henry Miller that's like a big red flag don't date him again you know (laughs) And I'm thinking, crikey, that's, they're, they're the people that I, I love to read. But that doesn't mean that just because you... Anyway, like you say, let's not go down that rabbit hole. But it is, a, it is an interesting... Another one's Bukowski. That was, he, he was on that flag list as well. And again, I love Bukowski. I just think he's so... I know that he's terribly offensive in all sorts of ways, but I just love the freedom of his writing and the fact that he just says it. In terms of your own... Writing, obviously, we right at the very start of the podcast, we're talking about your short story being shortlisted for the BBC National Short Story Award, which will get announced on October 19th. You've finished a new novel, Kid, which you're hoping to get published. Are you always working on something else, or are you working in, on other stories or other novels as we speak as well? Yeah, I mean, I've got two unfinished, what I would say a, a more an attempt at writing something more commercial something that maybe um, 
the sort of books that I often see in the bookshops and I think I really ought to try and write a book like that. So I've got two of those on the go. Whether they'll ever be finished and whether they're any good, I don't know, because in a way it's a different process. It's maybe the difference between, and again, I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound pretentious, but I think sometimes when you have the experiences like I did with Soldier Boy and Fan, where the work almost writes itself and you almost feel like you're in some sort of harmony with the work and it's kind of, it's it feels like art. It feels like, you are the again pretentious you feel like the artist really in your garret you know you know this is it this is the thing this is what you live for and then these other books are sort of like they're full of I think great ideas and but I have to sort of consciously sit down and make myself work on them and I think these could be really good but I don't have that voice you know sort of in my ear whereas with kid I did but that's my that's my novels my short fiction I'm much more conscious of what I'm doing I think and I've always got short stories on the go five or six at a time that are just sort of marinating and it takes a long time to write them because I I just come up with a line here, a paragraph there, and then eventually one day I, I glue them all together and it turns into something. But um or I don't, you know, there's thousands of them that don't get finished. But um, um again I've tried nowadays not to stress too much about it and just enjoy it because I think I've kind of given up with the idea that I'm ever gonna have that house in Cornwall as a result of my writing so it's more a case of a sort of well, take what that, you get take in, what you get in saying that obviously what you're doing then obviously has worked in terms of Toadstone the fact that you know because I'm not sure how many people or how many entries that competition would have got I'm guessing a lot and a lot of really good entries as well because of how prestigious it is so for you to get to where you are I think is it five people on the shortlist yeah when they when they called me just to float my own boat for a second they said um this is an award for excellence, they said. That did my <laughs> ego the world of good. I was sat in a vaccination centre. I just had my second um, <laughs> vaccination. And, you know, I was at 15 minutes where you're um, where you have to wait after you've had the vaccination, where you have to wait in yeah. case something bad's going to happen. That's when I got the phone call. And the first thing I'm thinking is, oh, God, I hope nothing bad happens now. Because, um, <laughs> you know, so. Um, but that's a kind of, I suppose, it, a very basic, that's a real validation of what you do. Yeah, but I wonder if we're always seeking valid. I, I don't think I'll ever feel validated. Again, maybe I, when I was younger, I thought I would do. But now I think I've realised that that's like chasing, you know, the end of the rainbow. You'll never find it because it's just in you. It's in you that you you are seeking something that you'll never find. Well, as I said at the start, I'm hoping that the good luck of the Read All About it podcast rubs off on you. And on October the 19th, then I can now start name-checking you as another prize winner on the podcast. Touch wood, fingers crossed. Thanks um, so much, Paul. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.